0: All right, we're now going to begin looking at what is sort of considered almost a third section of the New Testament. Uh, We're still in the epistles, but now we are moving beyond the writings of Paul, who made up a good chunk of the epistles we've seen so far, beginning with the book of Hebrews. Now, uh, right off the bat, it's important to understand that Hebrews, uh, we we say it's not one of Paul's letters because there's really no indication that he wrote it and it doesn't really look like him. Um, in fact, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is, has a very generic name. Uh, we can tell a few things about it as we dive into it. Uh, the author of Hebrews was a second generation Christian, meaning he was somebody that didn't know Jesus personally. Uh, he also was clearly intelligent, skilled. It's a very dense, deep, intelligent kind of book. Uh, and whoever knew it definitely whoever wrote it definitely knew the Old Testament well. But there's no historical record. There's no early church history of anybody or anything telling us who the author was. And again, the style, the writing, it's very unlike Paul. So really at no point throughout the church history was the Hebrew letter to the Hebrews ever attributed to Paul. We just don't know who wrote it. Um We also don't know when it was written. Some letters give us clues. We can align them with the book of Acts, or we can look at when the temple was destroyed, things like that. Hebrews doesn't give us any clues. Uh, We believe it was sometime before 90 AD. It wasn't the newest or oldest book in the New Testament, but it could be anywhere in the 40-year period. Uh, No real distinguishing marks tell us when it was written. Here's what we do know, though, and this is the important thing for understanding the book of Hebrews. We know who it was written to. We, we know the intended audience of this book. Uh, and the name itself kind of gives that away. Now, the book doesn't call itself The Letter to the Hebrews. That was a title given later, because when you read it, it's just kind of obvious. This letter was written to Christian believers who were Jewish, P- Jewish people who had either converted or uh, you know maybe they were second generation, but they were Jewish Christians. Uh, and we see that from start to finish. This book is full of references to the Jewish scriptures, tradition of Judaism, their history. If you were a pagan, uh, Gentile who just became a Christian three or four years ago, and your whole background was worshiping Zeus or Artemis or something, this book would be very confusing to you. You wouldn't understand most of it. So the author clearly believes in their writing that the person, that, the people they're writing to, understand Judaism. He also begins by saying, in the past, our ancestors heard from God through the prophets. Well, that phrase alone means it's a Jewish person probably writing to other Jewish people. this is important for understanding the book. Uh, You can't really make sense of Hebrews unless you understand it's being written to Jewish Christians. So let's talk about the purpose of the book that that flows out as you make sense of it. Based upon the overall argument, direction the book takes, it definitely appears that there were Jewish Christians who were growing discouraged and, and their faith might be a bit weakening. Uh, their commitment to Christ where it was weakening, probably because suffering and persecution. As we've already talked about in previous videos, uh, during that first century, the tension between Jews and Christians got very strong and Jews began to persecute Christians, seeing them as heretics and things like that. So you have the Jews and the Romans all kind of coming against early Christians. Well, if you're a Jewish Christian, you were sort of feeling this. You probably had family members who uh, heard that you had converted to this this sect called Christianity and they were against you. It was very difficult to be a Jewish Christian at this time. Um, and so at first you might hear that and think it's just another letter like we've already seen. You know, we saw Romans, Galatians written about persecution. But again, this is a bit different Uh, because what we see in the book of Hebrews is it's not a letter to these baby Gentile believers with no background of faith where they have to be, they have to be told to avoid sexual morality. Like what I do, you're right. He's writing to a different group of people. Uh, they don't need foundational basic ideas. Uh, he's writing to people that clearly have it. These were probably Jewish people who could trace their lineage all the way back to Abraham. Men and women, they knew the scriptures inside out. And these people had been waiting for the Messiah. Uh, their parents, their grandparents, their great generations, they had been waiting for the Messiah to come and to change their fortunes and restore what was lost all the way back from 400 years earlier with the, the captivity in Babylon. Um, they grew up reading the prophets and hearing the stories being told about a coming Messiah. So these people were part of that lineage who had heard the message of Jesus, the gospel, that this was the Messiah, the King, and they had decided to follow him and turn their lives over to it, uh, That believing that Jesus was the fulfillment of what they were waiting for. However, by 60, 70, 80 AD, some of these people were questioning whether or not they were right. Like for, yeah, Jesus. And then it's like, wait a second, Israel isn't necessarily getting better. And if Hebrews was written after uh, the fall uh, in late 60s, early 70s, when Rome came in and basically just destroyed the whole nation, if it was written after that, there were a lot of Jewish people like, wait a second, Uh, this Messiah hasn't made our lives better. Uh, our, Our people aren't better off now because of this Messiah. Our lives aren't better off. We thought the Messiah was going to bring in a golden age, an age to come when uh, the new heaven and new earth and the lion and lamb would lay down together, and we would flourish, and there'd be peace in Jerusalem. Where is all of this stuff? Were we wrong? Is is he not the one we were expecting? Did we make a mistake? And as things were getting difficult, and persecution was getting harsh, and they were their parents and family members were rejecting them, and they, you know, some people were being thrown to lions and things. It's like, wait a second, did we miss the boat here? Is it possible that Jesus wasn't who we thought he was? Should, should we go back to Judaism? Because maybe life was a bit better in some ways when we were just normal Jewish people. So you have this group of uncertain Jewish Christians, and it seems like the author of Hebrews is writing to them saying, okay, guys, I know you're questioning. I know it's uncertain. I know you're, you're like, oh, maybe this wasn't what we're looking for. But hold on. It is. Don't give up. Don't go back to your old life. And so that really represents the main theme of Hebrews. As you read this, if you keep this in mind as you're reading through, it kind of makes sense. The core idea, the fundamental idea is that Jesus has accomplished everything we were looking for. All the things we were holding on to and believing and waiting for God to do have happened in Christ. And he's ushered in a new, there's a new agreement now, this new covenant it was a. Fulf- it is the fulfillment. It is what you're looking for. I know you might not see it. I might not be difficult, but it was all leading to this. What Christ has accomplished for us. So don't lose heart. Don't give up, and don't entertain thoughts about going back. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. That's at the heart of the book. So he will. He'll argue a lot of what we already discussed. Only more from a Jewish perspective. And that can kind of help. Like Galatians was not written to Jews. Neither was Ephesians. It was written to Gentiles mostly. This book was written to Jews. And despite being given the law, his argument is God's people were never able to be fully free from sin. We saw that in Romans. But now he's talking right to the Gentiles. And the way that he does it to the Jews is he talks about this idea of rest. Now, real quick, just a side note. When you're reading Hebrews and you see him constantly talking about entering God's rest, Rest is associated with shalom, this idea, sometimes we translate as peace, but it really means wholeness, goodness, flourishing. Shalom is the world we're looking for, a violent, chaotic, broken, dysfunctional world coming to rest when God rests on the seventh day and the Sabbath and it is good. So finding rest is finding the world that God promised, that they were waiting for, that they thought the Messiah was going to bring. Some people are saying, wait, we we were thinking the Messiah was going to bring God's peace, his rest, his shalom, his flourishing but it's not quite here. Um, And we believe that God promised he was going to do it, a new covenant was going to come. And now we're like, well, we think this Christ Jesus has brought it through his ultimate sacrifice, but has he? Well, yes, he has. Um, So now there's a new covenant, a new agreement between how we relate to God. All the old ways have passed away. This will be his argument. The new way is better. There's no going back. Uh, And this would have been a big deal for Jewish people who are struggling. And they were struggling not just with their old way of life, but how much of their old way of life to hold on to. Should they still be getting circumcised? And can they, should they celebrate the Sabbath or has God's rest come? All these kinds of things are happening. And the argument of this book is a new way is better. And don't go back. Trust me. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's also an important book for us to understand the importance and place of the Old Testament in our lives, which is, this is a New Testament survey class, so that won't get into it, but all that's happening here. A couple tips as you're reading it, uh, a few things to look for. Uh, Much like Romans, Hebrews is is not an easy book to digest. Some would say Hebrews is harder than Romans, uh, but here's a few things to keep in mind as you're looking through it. First, Hebrews makes one big argument. I mentioned this when I did a video on Romans. Similar to that. Uh, It's not the kind of book that you want to just jump around and pick and choose. It's not a collection of thoughts, maybe like 1 Corinthians is. You can't really divide it up very easily. Hebrews needs to be read from start to finish. The author writes what we call an exposition. It's an argument. He wants to make a big, substantial point that builds over time about the Messiah and the New Covenant. So you really need to read Hebrews as a whole. Secondly, uh, to make this kind of argument to the Jewish people, two things were needed. first. The letter is filled with references to Jewish customs. So especially the the priest, the sacrificial system, the works of law, all these kind of things, they take center stage in much of this book. And it can be confusing to us if you're reading it and maybe you aren't familiar with some of that stuff. So one thing that can be helpful if you really want to dive into Hebrews, just go back and reread Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. You're going to see a lot of that coming out what he's talking about. But just know that's happening because he's writing to Jewish people. Uh, and even more than their customs, though, and this is the third thing, to make an argument to the Jewish people that they were in fact right and should keep doing what they're doing, he relies very heavily on the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, as you and I call it. Uh, Hebrews reads almost like somebody expositoring the Old Testament, almost like walking through the, 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 the scriptures and talking about what they mean. Uh, the prophets, all about them, all that kind of stuff. His entire argument will be made First and foremost, going back to the Old Testament and showing seven different times, you'll talk about how the Old Testament now look at what Jesus is as a fulfillment of what we've seen. And this was important. Um, Just compare real quickly. Imagine writing to a group of former pagans living in Galatia who had no background in any of this stuff. You wouldn't need to make a big argument about, you know, how this connects to the book of Exodus or the Abrahamic promises. They wouldn't care. They wouldn't know what you're talking about this book, those people do care. They want to know that is Jesus actually the fulfillment of what we were waiting for? For a comparison, Hebrews is a little bit like the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember, we talked about how Matthew sort of seems to be written to Jewish people. Uh, it has a, a ear that it gives a lot of their history, a lot of their culture, a lot of their verses. Hebrews and Matthew kind of have that in common. So he'll quote Psalms, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Proverbs, Exodus, all this kind of stuff. Throughout this book then, you'll find the author quoting the Old Testament passages. And that can be kind of like, what's happening here? Well, it can be a good study of, of going back and reading the passages as he quotes them. It might take some more investigation on your part. Um, what's more, he doesn't always just use one place. Oftentimes, he'll combine different passages. Sometimes he'll take different Psalms and put them together. You might be like, I don't I don't ever read that section anywhere. Well, it's actually four different passages all put together. So if you want to know how to understand and read Hebrews really well, you got to keep an eye on the times he's quoting the Old Testament and where he's pulling from. Another confusing thing, sorry, but it's good to know, is the author of Hebrews quotes not from the Hebrew Old Testament. He quotes from the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation that a lot of people had at the time. So when you actually read your Old Testament Bible, your English American scholars who have created modern Bibles don't use the Greek Septuagint. They go back and study the original Hebrew. So sometimes when you're reading Hebrews, you'll see a quote by the author from the Old Testament, and then you'll open up your Old Testament, wait a minute, that's, that's not exactly what it says. Well, it's actually because the author of Hebrews was basing his writing off of a, a Greek Bible that you and I don't read. Just something to keep in mind and help you understand what you're seeing through. So let's take a few minutes to walk through it. I'm I'm not going to go super deep here, but uh, obviously I want you to be reading the books on your own. But let me give you kind of a walkthrough to show the way that Hebrews unpacks and what he does. First, right off the beginning, Paul, I almost said Paul, sorry, the author of Hebrews uh, introduces Jesus as uh, the radiance of God's glory and talks about him seated at the right hand of majesty, these big places of power and authority over and greater than anyone else. And this sets up his entire argument that Jesus was not just another prophet, uh, not just another guy. He is the fulfillment. He is the Messiah. He is God. He is everything. So he's, he's establishing right from the beginning that Jesus is more. And he'll do this then in two parts. So starting right there in chapter one, verse four, he'll start off by first arguing that Jesus is greater than the law, the Torah, right? Jesus is greater than the Torah. The Torah was, they built their whole lives around it. So he begins his argument by quoting Old Testament passages, which show that Jesus, and now watch what he does here. And it can be, you're kind of like, what's happening? Let me make sense of this. He talks about Jesus being superior to angels um, and affirms his opening point. Jesus is another prophet. He's he's not only greater than angels, he's greater than Moses. Now, you and I might read that and be like, greater than angels and Moses. Why are you telling me that? Well, here's why you need to know that. Again, Jewish audience. The people who he was writing to grew up believing that their entire lives should be centered around the Torah, the word of God, the, the, like the first five books of the Old Testament, the original message. And where did that come from? Well, they believed that God spoke to angels and angels then gave it to Moses. That was kind of their tradition. So it should be listened to because angels and Moses, their, their highest prophet of all time is the one that gave them the Torah. Um, and now the author of Hebrews is saying, hold on, forget about the, the the angels and the ones that gave it to earthly Moses. Jesus is greater than all of them. Uh, it's a lesser to greater argument. And they actually, that was a common ancient way of arguing that if you could show that something was lesser and something was greater, you could win the argument. The greater thing should be good. Jesus is greater than the ones that gave us the Torah. It came down from the throne room of God to the angels who then gave it to Moses. Jesus is in the throne room. He's on the throne. So He's greater. Uh, He argues that Moses and the law itself was just a house that was built, but Jesus was the builder of the house. He is the word of God made flesh. So Jesus is greater. Um, He also talks about Moses never entered God's rest. Moses never saw the, the peace of God, the shalom, because the law was never able to bring that. The law was never able to bring about this. They just wandered in the desert. Um, Christ is greater. and He's done something that truly brings God's rest, God's peace. God, the fulfillment that we're looking for came through Jesus. So Jesus is greater than our law. He's greater than Torah. Now, that's the first step. He's greater than the Torah. There were two parts, though, to Judaism that was part of their worship. There was the Torah, the law, but then there was also the temple, the worship of God's presence. So starting in chapter four, the author then shifts. First, he's greater than Torah. Now, he's greater than the temple. Uh, and this is where he picks up a lot of the religious system stuff that can be confusing. Um, again, it helps to go back and read Leviticus and other places to understand how he's what kind of argument he's making here. Um, but he wants to say, not only is he greater than our Torah, he's greater than all the priests, all the sacrifices, everything that happens in the temple, which is like the center of our lives. Jesus is greater. So it used to be, he'll argue, that there was only one high priest who could enter God's presence and that we were offering these sacrifices all the time. We would kill animals, the blood, all this kind of stuff to maintain God's presence. And in order to, uh, you know, maintain this right relationship with God, but Christ has now come and become the ultimate one time for all sacrifice. And he himself is the high priest. And essentially all of the temple stuff is no longer needed. We don't need any of it anymore. We don't have to offer sacrifices. We don't even need a physical temple. We don't need a high priest representing us. Jesus has conquered all of it. He's taken care of it all. He's done everything that needs to happen. Um, And so after a section of sort of, again, let's not fall away. Let's hold to this. He brings up this guy Melchizedek, and I don't want to get too much into this, but just a real quick thing Melchizedek is this figure that shows up in Genesis who Abraham saw as a priest and a king together. And Jesus is greater than this, this Melchizedek because Jesus is our king and our high priest, and he is the sacrifice, he's all of it. Um, and really, the argument that, that Hebrews wants to make is all that stuff that we were doing. We had the Torah to teach us what should be true. We had the temple where where God's presence dwelt among our city, and we offered sacrifices to maintain the relationships. Jesus is all of it. He is the Word made flesh, He is the Torah living, talking to us directly. We don't need a priest to go before God with us. We have Jesus, who's God in the flesh, who's come right near us. There's no middleman in it anymore. And we don't need all these sacrifices to maintain the presence of God. Because of Jesus, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and God's presence dwells within us. In this new covenant, His blood covers our sin and makes us a holy temple where God can dwell. So that was what we were waiting for. Remember our prophet Jeremiah who said, God wanted to give us a new heart. It's because of Jesus. He is the consummation of the entire system, what it was all pointing towards, what it was all leading to. It's Jesus. So he's greater than all of it. And think of this not only is he greater than it, he makes all that old stuff kind of superfluous, kind of worthless. And in the end, the, the law and the temple and the sacrifices and the priests. They were just a shadow of the real thing that was to come. They were a temporary band-aid to fix the problem that was created in the Garden of Eden, because in the Garden of Eden, we had God's presence directly with us. We didn't need sacrifices. We didn't need temples. We were the temples, but we ruined it because of sin. And all that stuff, the Torah, the the priests, all those things were just created to try to get us through this problem that we had created. But now Jesus fixes it. He doesn't just cover up sin with blood. He defeats it. He, he breaks its power of our lives. He is the champion that the world has been waiting for to bring about the true victory that we need. Uh, and so in many ways, what he, it's like it's not, that, it's not that Judaism was bad. It's not that offering the sacrifices and going to the temple was a bad or stupid thing or whatever. It's that, well, that was just, that was a Band-Aid, people. <laughs> that was just us. That was a shadow of the great and glorious thing that could be coming. Um, the earthly Kings we had were just us, you know, we needed something, but now we don't even need that because the true King has come and we can follow God himself. Uh, so if he has come and he has defeated death and sin itself and done away with the need for temples and priests and blood sacrifices and, and written down Torahs, um, why would we ever go back to it? Why would you want to go back to what was basically a band-aid when true healing has come? And so then you get to chapter 10 of Hebrews and Paul wants to say, therefore, listen, if that's true, I know life can be tough right now. I know what you're dealing with is difficult, but the most reasonable thing you can do is just keep pressing on, fight through because what Christ has done, even though your life is difficult right now, what Christ has done is better. Stand firm, hold to the faith you've given to him because it is better. It, you didn't make a mistake. You weren't wrong. Just because things aren't perfect right now, does not mean that what Christ did isn't better. It is. You found the real thing. You have God's presence living in you. You've been forgiven. You have the blood of Jesus. Why go back? Rather, take advantage of it. Draw near to God now. Uh, spur each other on. Be you know. Let's let's go. Let's do this thing. We have what we need. Um, now, okay, sure, but what about the fact that things still aren't perfect? Uh, you know, how do you, ex- how do you explain the fact that it's been 30 years since Jesus left and the world is still a pretty rough place? Well, you know, yes, sin has def- been defeated, but it still seems there's a lot of brokenness and the world isn't what it used to be. They're still, they're throwing us to lions. How do we reconcile this? And this is now what the author wants to kind of get into. And so he'll take, a pl- he'll take a page out of Romans where he'll cite Habakkuk, that, that prophet who questioned God on the same issue. God, when are you going to fix it? And the response was live by faith. And so now in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews wants to say, listen, I know it seems difficult. I know things aren't perfect right now, but just think about all the people who have gone before us who weren't in perfect situations, who struggled, who didn't quite see what they wanted to see, who were waiting for God to do something, but chose to be faithful and live by faith. You too should do the same thing. Follow their example. Um, Remain faithful. Don't give up. Look at all the heroes of our faith in chapter 11 who never even saw it. You've at least seen some of it. You have the Holy Spirit. there's, There's good here. They had nothing and they had faith. How much more should you persevere? Um, so you have this great cloud of witnesses who've gone before you, who are waiting to experience what you're experiencing. They didn't give up. They remain faithful. So should you. Um, so there are many who didn't see the promise, uh, who were confused as to what God was doing. When would he, when would he act? And they chose to stand faithful. Um, so again, if they could stay faithful, how much more should you and I consider them if you grow weary. Um, that's kind of his, where, he's, where he's landing. don't give up. So really all the way up to chapter 11 he's making a theological argument about why Jesus is better and then in 11 he's like, so now don't give up, stay faithful. you made the right decision by choosing Jesus. Um, and then that kind of he kind of closes the book with two final things to consider. Um, the first is that uh, the overall argument of the book is not to give in during suffering and persecution because of who Christ is. He'll now actually argue how, in fact, there's even some good to be had in suffering. Uh, So, Hebrews even wants to say some of the suffering you experience is actually bringing about uh, fruit of the Spirit in your life and good things. So, see a positive in some of it. But then also, and this might be where he really kind of lands the plane, remember though that Christ suffered. We're following a suffered Christ. But he suffered in order for you to have a holy life, renewed relationship with Jesus and God. So strive for holy living and doing good. Remember Christ's sacrifice and keep going. Keep striving to be the people he's called you to be because he paid a high price for it. So that's really what the book is about. I know it's dense, it's deep, there's a lot to it. But if you approach it understanding who he's writing to, Jewish people, and a lot of the stuff that's confusing is because of their history, and you can find those answers in the Old Testament. But then also understand the big idea of the book is these people were feeling tempted to maybe go back to their old way of life, to give up on Christ and go back to what they had before. But again and again, the author wants to say, what you had before was less than what you have now. Don't let difficulty, trials, or persecution make you think that going back to Egypt was a good thing. Like the world was not better in Egypt. It's better here and now. And I think as Christians, sometimes we need to remind ourselves that as well. Some of us have made decisions to follow Jesus. Some of you are going to be pastoring or leading others. Or you talk to people who've made a decision to follow Jesus. And They're like, man, it's actually really hard. And sometimes I wonder, was my life better before? And the answer is no. It is always better following Jesus. That is the message of Hebrews. So um, a great book, a great study. And uh, hopefully you learn from it and dive into it and really let that message take root in your heart. Okay. All right. Well, we'll continue our study of the New Testament in our next video, looking at the book of James. So we'll see that. Thanks guys.